John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 866.MT2230, certificate number 34322, Oneida. Shall we gather at the river? Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful So in the early 19th century, there was what we think of as the second big revival movement in the United States. Um, there had been an initial revival movement in the mid-1700s that was another attempt to kind of bring, bring the idea that white Europeans had come to America and it was, a, it was an untrammeled, Edenic land where uh, we were free to start over again as our purer human selves, uncorrupted by the traditions of Europe and by the sort of all the ugly appurtenances that attach themselves to European culture. We could be new men and women and, and as pure as the land. It's funny how many things in American history just come from the landscape, you yeah. know? If the mountains hadn't been quite as pretty or the orchards quite as verdant, you know, like we, we wouldn't be in the same situation we are today. Sure. I think if uh, the original sort of uh, pilgrims had come and America had been kind of a, a dry desert. Like if they'd come to Florida? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, eh. Eh, It's a little muggy here. But, <laughs> it's a lot but, of bugs. But, you know, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and Virginia all suggested this rebirth. And there was, a, it inspired a lot of religious movements and particularly ones that we think of as uh, evangelical or fundamentalist, where you would you would go uh, return to the original Bible and take no, none of your sort of Roman or even Lutheran traditions with you. A lot of it is just there's more room to maneuver, right? It's easier to get out from under the thumb of your annoying pastor or bishop or whoever it is and uh, just get left alone to do your own religious thing, right? Maybe, maybe not so easy in Switzerland. That's right. Uh, it, much more difficult to kind of go get your own hundred acres and start Start a religion that comes from your own sort of uh, personal experience of God. Your own is, perhaps eccentric reading of uh, scripture and where it overlaps with your own hobbies and uh, 
and view of your life. Right. This was a very American experience, right? That you would, and it's part of the Calvinist tradition that you have a personal relationship with God. And that means that you're actually getting messages from God. And God has a lot of different things to say to a lot of different people. That's gone today, right? I mean, we don't really have the opportunity to, you know, we live in a more urbanized society. Americans today have less license to be, you know, I don't know what I would be into. Like, I'm really, like, I feel like I have a very strong religious feeling when I hear Beach Boys harmonies. Yeah. I'm going to go start my cult where we just listen to isolated Beach Boys harmonies <laughs> from the Pet Sounds and Smile sessions. Although within evangelicalism, there still is quite a bit of theology that comes from God actually speaking to uh, the ministers, right? God is still in contact with Christians, uh, both individually and through their pastors. It's just that they're, it's not so eccentric anymore. Uh, it's Right. It's, it's, it's maybe fear of the, the social uh, pressures of what would happen if you went to your minister and said, I just feel like we need more. Beach Boys or whatever. Right, right. Uh, there are religious communities that have very controversial ideas, but those ideas are shared among a pretty large group of people. So, for instance, if you are going to say that God is creating hurricanes to punish the state of North Carolina for having all-gender bathrooms, you're going to have the hundreds of thousands or even millions of people who, who sign off on that idea. But if you come around and say, for instance, like the Westboro Baptist Church, and say that God is killing soldiers in Iraq because he's mad about the acceptance of homosexuals, that is going to be a pretty isolated idea. It's tough on your base. You don't want to, don't want to go against the troops. Yeah, don't, don't go against the troops. But in the early 19th century in America, there were a lot of people having these personal experiences of God. And there was a there was a huge sort of tent revival movement that was kind of the most famous practitioner of it was a minister by the name of Charles Finney, who was traveling the American states at the time, which, you know, obviously mostly New England and New England and what they considered the West, I think, was all the way out to Indiana. Whoa. Uh, but but, you know, that was pretty far out. Uh, and he was going around and and. You know, it's funny how in our century you go to California to start your cult, but back then California not having been invented, you know, if you want to start Est or whatever, you go to Ohio because that's the, that's the frontier at the time. Well, at, at, during this era, um, upstate New York was a very sure. fertile area in Vermont. I mean, places that seemed like the wilderness. So Finney was very popular and he really affected the religious consciousness of the American states. He brought a lot of people into a religious movement that exists to this day, kind of a Methodist idea of, of congregations that went their own way and, were, and had a personal relationship with God. And, and it influenced the abolitionist movement. It influenced the, the women's rights movement. Typically, these religious revival movements were much more much more welcoming of people of all races, classes, creeds, and genders. And odd ideas, right? I mean, religious movements that had some success came out of this, you know, uh, the Shakers and the Mormons and, you know, religious movements that, you know, made an imprint for decades or even to the present day. The Adventists. Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses could have come out of this period. Mm -hmm. um, America was a real primordial soup of weird religious ideas, you know, which ones could evolve fast enough to 
to make it. That's right. In fact, Baptists, for the most part, came out of this period too, which are, that's a major congregation now. There's your success story. Uh-huh. I mean, Mormons kind of turned from these oddball uh, frontier fringe people to this very hierarchical business run world church where everybody dresses like a 1950s IBM executive. But we only dream of the kind of mainstream success the Baptists have. <laughs> well, baptism can include a lot of different doctrines. There are a lot of American Baptists of different stripes, and and oftentimes they disagree with each other. But they got their president. Different. They got Jimmy Carter. You That's know. right. The, the Mormons have fallen just short. Oh, you were their, so close. Just a whisker away. So close. Man, if it had been Hillary instead of Obama, that could have been us. Well, one of the more unusual sons of this movement was a man by the name of John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes? Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S. Oh, it's not like bring in the noise. No, no, no. Although that would have been a, I mean, if he were a contemporary, Today, he, he yeah. would have changed the spelling of his name to he, N-O-I-Z. He would have N-O-I-Z on his, on his van <laughs> for sure. But he was a Vermonter who was kind of a free thinker and a, um, and a rebel and an agnostic and a, tr- you know, just, he was a rich kid oh. and a troubled kind of like, nobody can be the boss of me kind of rich kid who ended up defying his mother, going to Dartmouth and uh, one assumes smoking opium and wearing velvet slippers and just was generally like just a, raising hell, basically a hell raiser. But his mother was very devout and she kept encouraging him to go to the tent revivals of Charles Finney. Oh, are we going to see what happens where you try to save your kid it, it, and, and your rebel kid gets religion in the wrong way? It didn't turn out the way she expected. He did go to see Charles Finney. He wasn't into it at first, but on a subsequent revival meeting, he had kind of a, maybe a prototypical experience where he didn't exactly see the light, but he, he felt cold. He felt a shudder. Uh, the following day, his bacon tasted different and Are these hypothetical examples, or is, is it actually bacon-related? Uh, no, I don't think he actually had a bacon <laughs> experience. I'm just talking about my own religious conversions. <laughs> Beach Boys and bacon. <laughs> um, but he felt touched by, by the finger of the Spirit in some way. He did, and he had a conversion and sort of uh, became extremely religious, so much so that he went and enrolled in the Yale Divinity School in order to become a minister. But during the course of studying the ministry at Yale, he developed a new doctrine, a new sense that, in fact, the second coming of Christ had already happened. Whoa. In fact, it happened in A.D. 70, only, you know, like within, within the lifetime of Christ's followers, Christ did return. I like I like how he thinks he's the only one. Hey, I've been I've been looking at this Bible, uh-huh. and it Jesus tells people he's going to come to see his disciples before the temple is destroyed. So we missed it. I think it happened already. That was eighteen hundred years ago. How have you guys not? And and what he's what he's saying basically is that we are living now in the kingdom of post second coming. It's some um, it should be some Eden like millennium. And if it's not, we're doing something wrong. Right. And so the doctrine that he described was that, in fact, accepting Jesus created perfectionism in you. We were no longer fallen. We were not sinful and depraved. We were living in the light of God. And if you felt uh, inspired 
by God, you could in fact claim to be perfect in the here and now. This upset people a lot, and it seems to be based just in his own personal conviction that he had no feelings uh, that his behavior was evil. I'm a good guy. Yeah, that he, doesn't jive with the uh, what I read from Paul. He just couldn't hang with uh, with feeling like that he was fallen, a sinner. But this really didn't comport with the uh, what was being taught at the Yale Divinity School. And so they refused to ordain him. He became a kind of heretic there. Oh, wow. And so he ventured out, like so many other tent revivalists, and was preaching his, his newfound discovery. Well, I'm imagining that anybody who bases their religious experience on, I cannot possibly be a sinner— Stop bringing me down, man. Like, that's probably a kind of magnetic megalomaniac kind of personality that might do very well on the tent circuit. Yeah, he does seem like he might be bipolar one, uh, (laughs) suffering from a tremendous grandiosity. But he did attract a small number of followers who were, of course, I mean, it, it was, for all intents and purposes, a cult of personality. Well, today that would be a very easy sell. That's more the kind of touchy feely breed of Christianity we see in mega churches today, like, I'm okay, you're okay, you know, we don't want religion to make you feel bad or get down on yourself. It should be appealing, the idea that we are already living in Christ's kingdom and let's feel good. And it was to, because also during this re, uh, this uh, period of revivalism and restoration of, of uh, the true meaning of religion, there was a real utopian bent to this. Uh, people went out and formed small communities. That's the landscape again, man. Yeah. It's, where, very, it's really pretty out there in the country. Let's go make Eden. They were going to uh, raise sheep and cows and chickens and eat communally and spend all day singing hymns, I guess. This this was not unfamiliar. No, there were there were like hundreds of these, I think. Uh-huh. There's Brook Farm and uh, the Shakers, I guess. There's a lot of these. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So Noise decided he, well, he wanted to, obviously he wanted to spread his doctrine and Although he suffered from some broken heartedness in his young life, the woman that, to whom he felt the the calling, I guess, left him to marry another man. And he ended up in a marriage of convenience with a wealthy woman who, in addition to his family money, allowed him to buy a printing press and start publishing his own 
publishing his theories in his own magazine, which he called The Battle Axe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was it named after his wife? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Harriet, uh, thank you. I've, I've named my little pamphlet after you. <laughs> so he developed four main doctrines of his, of the practice of this kind of perfectionism. Did they play that 70s board game Perfection? Where if you don't finish in time, the board pops and all the little yellow plastic pieces come in your face. Do you know the game I'm talking about? I do remember that game. I didn't realize it was called Perfection. I think it's called Perfection. Perhaps it was invented by... And and as you're playing, you can see the thing ticking down. You yeah, know you, it's about to and explode. And you know any second. It's really trying to give you that kind of uh, cut the red wire kind of a vibe from a bomb defusing movie. I feel like that was a very influential television commercial. On yeah. me. I'm not sure I ever actually played the game. I played the game and it's traumatizing, yeah. by the way. Because you're, you're, you're building, 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 and then it's all laid to waste in one explosion. Yeah, it's a metaphor for life, yeah. basically. So this has nothing to do with Christian perfectionism. Sorry. Uh, it may actually it may actually have been an extension, just like Mussolini's <laughs> Roman right. salute. This could be an example of how it was misconstrued over time. I predict that we're going to see uh, Noises Utopia blowing up in his face like a bunch of little yellow plastic pieces, but I don't want to spoil the ending. So what uh, Noise attracted to himself a small group of followers, which included his brother and his sisters and his mother. And at a certain point, he... It's like, it's like selling all the tickets for your high school band concert to like <laughs> right. grandma. Yeah, grandma bought six. Yeah, grandma or all your Girl Scout cookies you sell to your <laughs> neighbors. Right. You extort it. And I think he, he, married, he married two of his most ardent followers to his two sisters. So it really was a small community and largely made up of his, uh, initially made up of his family. But as they brought more and more people in. And where is this, by the way? Where, where is? So this is all happening in New York State and Vermont. And at a, at a certain point, he's not being, the, the, these ideas are not really accepted by his neighbors or the larger Christian community. And he realizes that they need to secure some space for themselves where they can practice their religion in their own little fiefdom. And so they buy a considerable amount of, you know, a hundred acres or more in the town of Oneida, New York, um, which is very close to the Canadian border, which was not unintentional because in the event that they were persecuted, they could escape over the border. They're out of the reach of Johnny Law. Yeah. And what were they doing that they felt that the legal authorities might frown on? Well, so the evolution of his ideas ended up with sort of four main tenets. Uh, the first tenant was the doctrine of complex marriage. Oh, uh, here we go. And complex marriage meant that everyone in the community was married to everyone else in the community. Wow. Speaking that, of California hippie religion. Yeah. Within this perfectionism, there was not... So noise didn't attach the same kind of ugliness to sex that we do now. He, in fact, kind of attached some approbation to the institution of marriage, which he thought closed one off from, from your fellows and was a kind of idolatry. Wow. So at the time when the rest of the religious community is into marriage but down on sex, he's doubling down on sex but not so into marriage. Sex in a certain way. He suffered some real tragedy in his life, which was that his wife got pregnant five times and had four 
miscarriages and stillborn children. So there was a lot of tragedy there. And he felt that, and he was inspired by the deaths of these children to really think hard about procreation and what its relationship to God was. So it really sours him on the idea of even having kids. Well, ultimately he felt that there was like procreative sex. And I think what he felt was that these stillborn children were actually, they were functionally a waste of his precious seed. His precious bodily fluids. Uh, and he felt that masturbation was a grievous crime. Uh, and so he developed his second doctrine, which was of male continence, which was a form of uh, orgasm withholding. Oh, it's like sting? It's like tantric? It's a little, it's a little tantric. And now this idea is gaining in popularity again, that by training yourself not to orgasm, you can have transcendent sexual experiences or that it is somehow increases your, your electric your potency. Potency. Yeah. But, um, it, but it sounds like for him, it was birth control. It was a way to. No, it was both things. You were able to have the connection, the social connection of sex with people without committing the sin of spilling your seed or the sin of unwanted procreative sex. Well, I guess if everybody on your farm is stopping by the room of everybody else on your farm, you need a workaround or it's just going to be a rabbit warren. Right. So male continence was, um, was a thing that you had to practice and develop, right? You weren't initially going to be able to pull this off every single time. It was a form of the, um, as you became an elder in the community, you began to perfect this ability to have sex without orgasm. And that led to his third doctrine, which was the doctrine of ascending fellowship, which is a hierarchical idea that if you're a young person in the community, you don't have this trained restraint. And so as young members are indoctrinated into the faith, they need to be partnered with older members of the community who can teach them the way, the truth, and the light. Did this function as a way of providing him with Suspiciously young company? It did. In, uh, in the, fact, the youth's companion. In fact, every virgin in the community was paired with an older member of the community who in, introduced them into the ways of sex. That was nice of them, to, the older members of the community, to sacrifice. It was. In and, that way. and Noise often uh, took the lead in this as the, as the eldest member of the community. But interestingly, there was a, a considerable amount of of equality for women within his community. I saw that they, they were allowed to wear uh, like uh, kind of short skirts over pants, like even in the day before bloomers. Well, and in fact, they influenced the development of bloomers because uh, the woman who did develop bloomers was a neighbor of their community. And, oh, Amelia Bloomer or uh, whatever, uh, Ms. She, Ms. Bloomer? Yeah, Amelia Bloomer was a neighbor in sort of that part of Seneca Falls, New York, and she saw the women of the Oneida community wearing this very distinctive costume of a, a pretty short dress over billowy pants and then took it and popularized it to the world. That's funny that his sort of creepy harem ideas end up inspiring these egalitarian suffragettes. 
Well, and another way that that uh, manifest itself was that uh, young male virgins in the community were introduced to the idea of male continence by partnering with postmenopausal women. Mrs. Robinson, I think you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> she, the woman, then would teach him continence, and of course, because he initially didn't have the skills, he's incontinent. It wouldn't be procreative sex. And so, you I know, see. they could. As long as he's not fertile, you got a loophole for him to, to you know, misfire from time to time. Yeah, they could experiment. He could, he could practice. He could fail. He could fail again, and still eventually kind of learn his uh, techniques. Although I don't think you were ever going to work your way up in the ascending fellowship to ever be at the level of noise. Who was he was going to operating tenth level Phaeton. <laughs> So the community continued to grow, albeit slowly, and they added some property to their facility there at Oneida, and they lived communally in a giant sort of rambling building that they built for themselves, and they ate communally, and obviously they were in a communal marriage, although you weren't allowed really to pick your sex partners according to your own whimsical desire. It was oh, all... Did, did noise have to fix you up? It had to kind of come through a committee. The elders. There was a decision where, you know, you were allowed. And because they're all living together in a big house, you couldn't just sort of sneak off. Um, others would hear the, the bed springs creaking and you would be... <laughs> it was a very strict schedule. Yeah, you'd be in big trouble. Um, and then the fourth doctrine was the doctrine of mutual criticism where there would be sort of meetings of the community and they would give each other the business, you know, break it down what one another's failings were in a kind of group therapy. Wow. Including sexual failings, I assume. It's like the Jerry Springer show. Every, yeah, everybody's in there throwing chairs at each other. I mean, probably not, but definitely a lot of this kind of social remonstrations uh, but to, this would kind of be on the minute. So uh, Jedediah, it looks like you're up to uh, three and a half minutes. Nice, nice work. We'd like to see that up to six <laughs> minutes by by the end of February uh -huh. when the planning season starts. It was apparently a very humiliating experience. Uh, and the only person exempt from it. I have a guess. Yeah, you're right. It was John Noyes, who was assumed to be uh, above criticism because he was he was their spiritual guide. He was their elder. So I imagine this must have been very hard on people who did not fare well in these mutual criticism sessions. I think the idea was that you would be broken down and rebuilt more closely in the image of the Oneida community. Do you know the most famous person who did not uh, fit in in Oneida? So Charles Guiteau, uh, this oddball from the frontier, Loved Noyes' ideas, mm -hmm. but could not hack it in the Oneida farm. I assume his male continence was not up to snuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he gets run out after, they call him Charles Get Out. That's, they're, not, they're not into his work. And he's run out of the community on a rail and later ends up publishing Noyes' own ideas under his own name in a book called The Truth and feels that God has told him to kill President James Garfield. So he shoots President Garfield in hopes of getting publicity for his ideas, which are really just Noyes' ideas and are fueled by his bitterness 
of not being able to make it in the sack with the ladies of Oneida Farm. President Garfield was killed by male continence, the first victim. Isn't that something? He's the, uh, he's the John Hinckley of his day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except rather than... Except a- instead of Jodie Foster, <laughs> it's some 75-year-old widow in uh, upstate New York. Huh. President Garfield might still be alive today. Uh, Can you imagine how different the world would be if Garfield were still alive? Chester A. Arthur is the biggest fan of uh, of male continents. <laughs> Only four U.S. presidents have been assassinated in our country's history, Futurelings, and uh, one in four of them, apparently, it's a result of uh, weirdo sexual religious ideas. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Well, if you think about living in this community, it feels like for all of its sexual freedom and uh, all of its utopian ideals, it feels a little stressful to me. (laughs) I'm not sure. I mean, I think if you were John Noyes, it would probably be pretty good. And then uh, as you move further down the pack, I guess your view never changes, right? This seems to be true in many religious cults where the guy running the show has it pretty good with his gold-plated Rolls Royces or whatever it is, but somebody's got to be at the bottom of the pecking order. It's interesting how much 19th century socialism in America was Christian in nature, because today we might think of that as, a, you know, in this country, we might think of global socialism as a godless movement. But yeah, and, and this is, and others seem to think you needed God or it wouldn't work. Uh, this all started pre-Marx, right? So there wasn't a sense of uh, of communalism or even what they described as communism as being something connected to a global revolution overthrowing the moneyed class. It was a global revolution to get closer to God. It was more like we'll get off the grid and print our hymnals. And, and be natural. Natural human beings, the the idea of us returning to a kind of small village state where we uh, were in a post-industrial economy and we were making things with our hands, this was thought of, you know, to be a godly state and that our godlessness was a product of living in cities and being divorced from that personal relationship. I guess in Europe, uh, 20th century Europe, socialism did find common cause with religious movements to the degree that the most successful mainstream religious movements in Europe in our time uh, are Christian socialist right. parties. You know, that's, that's where you get all these European liberal democracies out of the mix of socialist principles and religious uh, convictions. Well, the curious thing, I think, in, in 21st century America is how... Christian denominations could ever divorce themselves from the idea of a kind of communal approach or, uh, I mean, it's certainly in the doctrine of Christianity 
to treat your neighbor as you would like to be treated, which is quite a bit different than how sure, the evangelical pros- faiths, are, faiths are approaching our common welfare now. Sure, the prosperity gospel is maybe hard to find in, in scripture. In the scripture itself. And then right? Jesus saith, I got mine. Yeah, Jesus probably would not have voted for Roy Moore in Alabama. Uh, so the community continued to grow very, very slowly and only ever arrived at its largest point at about 300 members. But that was enough to be self-sustaining. And they did practice this kind of arts and crafts, back to nature, uh, small manufacturing. They made little crafts that they sold. They were farmers and... Um, they, they literally built a better mousetrap, did they not? Yeah, they had little, they built little gizmos and, um, and their mousetrap was famous in its time. And the Lazy Susan, I think they were very proud of uh, having the, I guess that's a communal, that's a socialism invention. Like you don't get to keep your plate. Somebody might just rotate the beans away from you. Yeah, that's right. You put down the dim sum in the middle and you spin it around. And Bernie Sanders is going to be at the table, like (laughs) spinning the the asparagus away from you so everybody gets some. To each according to his need (laughs) and from each according to his ability. So yeah, they, they thought of themselves as the inventors of the Lazy Susan. Uh, eventually he was sort of chased out of the United States and he did is in fact escape over the border into Canada, but he continued to have tremendous influence on the community at Oneida. And he tried to install his son in the role that he had vacated. His son, uh, Dr. Theodore Noyes became the leader of the community, but unfortunately... Dr. Noyes. Dr. Noyes. I love when he became the band leader for the Muppets. That's my that's my favorite part of... Dr. Noyes was a great Dan Aykroyd <laughs> movie, too, in the mid-'80s. <laughs> is, he a, is he a talk radio host? That's what I'm picturing. Uh, Dr. Noyes had the additional complication of being agnostic. Oh. And so it spelled the beginning of the end for the Oneida community because a lot harder to practice these utopian principles if they aren't being motivated by this primary doctrine of perfectionism. And quite literally the fear of God. I mean, maybe that's why all these utopias have a religious character, because if you don't have, you know, people literally quivering in their boots over God's wrath, they're not going to stick with this troublesome program of everybody telling you how long you have to last in the sack and then Bernie keeps stealing your beans. Yeah, right. It's a complete system. And if you take away one foundational brick, it doesn't take long for the whole thing to crumble. So what did happen? How did Oneida crumble? Well, by 1880, as the wheels were coming off and people within the community were kind of arguing with each other over theological differences and sort of there were splinter groups developing, Noyes abandoned the system of complex marriage. And with that, that was the last glue that was holding the group together. Free love, was it? Uh, The people that were in the community all sort of immediately kind of picked one another and got married. I think probably within the 300 people, there were very definitely people who thought of one another as couples, even though that may have been... uh, I'm, I'm imagining like a 10th grade class frantically pairing off for the for the homecoming dance or whatever, like, ah, who hasn't been asked yet? Exactly. I think the communities that surrounded them were ne- never learned to accept the Oneida community. And when it when they lost the protection of the of the umbrella, 
I think there was probably, it was definitely a game of musical chairs and the music had stopped and you'd better not be the last one standing without a partner. So there was all this property that was held in common. You know, the community had been living together communally from the very start and they owned this fairly enormous complex where they were manufacturing all this all these mouse traps and lazy susans and <laughs> other little geegaws. How long did this last? Did this actually last decades? I'm like, uh, it did. So uh, the you know noise started preaching his uh, tenets uh, as early as 1835, uh, and they formed the community in the mid 1840s, uh, and this lasted until 1880. That's uh, a nice long lifespan for a socialist utopia cult. Well, it really was. And, and I think part of what helped it along was that they never grew to be more than 300 members. Um, but you can imagine there was an awful lot of male continents. Yeah. If you're one of these guys in that 40 years, you can have sex three or four times. Uh, right. Well, <laughs> and I think the community over the course of its run produced about 40 kids. All accidents, right? Uh, I don't think so. I think that, you know, there were times when uh, when sex for procreation was authorized. I think later in the community's life, if I'm remembering this right, they did begin a eugenics movement. Like, we need a few dozen kids, and I think it's going to be you and you and, you know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so there was some early attempt at, at uh, getting replacement level population. They had... They had um, like some of the best socialist organizations, they had among their 300 members, 21 committees and 48 administrative departments. <laughs> so they really embraced bureaucracy. Let's go to the woods and get away from this all and then create the most troublesome bureaucracy we can imagine. <laughs> and they, so they monitored every aspect of their community. They had little committees you know, thought policing probably every little bit of what you did. And that included who had sex with whom for babies. But at the, at the dissolution of this project, there was all this property to deal with. And the, I think a lot of the members of the community just, it was, a, it was a flash diaspora. They just, when they realized that this wasn't the deal anymore, they got the hell they out of Dodge. filled their pockets with mousetraps and ran. I think so. But there were some people remaining uh, including some of Noyes' relatives, and they retitled the property under the ownership of a commonly held corporation. And they named it the Oneida Community Limited, uh, which quickly became Oneida Limited. And it was, um, it was a joint stock company. All the members of the community held stock in the corporation com communally. And their experience making mousetraps and lazy Susans and other little uh, household items right. in included manufacturing silver plate forks, knives, and spoons, uh, table settings. And uh, pretty early on in the development of their joint stock company, they decided, let's focus our attention on making silverware. It happens to every sex cult in the end. In the end, you It starts out with good times, and then by the end, you're just making silverware. You have to choose. You have to choose between Lazy Susan's mousetraps and silverware, and they chose silverware. Fast forward just a few decades, and Oneida was the largest silverware manufacturer in the United States. 
<laughs> so this is the Oneida silverware we still see in our time. It is the Oneida silverware that you you see in restaurants and at, at home. I can only assume that our future listeners are still using Oneida in their dining atria. Well, and during World War II, Oneida branched out into manufacturing all manner of uh, metal goods and stuff for the war. But in the post-war period, Oneida became... They manufactured over 50% of all the tableware that uh, was sold in the United States. I wonder if the if you work for that company today, if you're aware of your origins as a sex cult. I think so. I think that they never entirely forgot their heritage because they continued to be headquartered in Oneida, New York. Until very recently, after 9-11, one of the very subtle and weird unexpected results of the panic, the financial panic that came from 9-11 was that tableware settings plummeted. Really? No one was in the market for new. I guess I can see airlines not using them anymore. Yeah, but, but, uh, but apparently it is in the category of a household luxury that if you are feeling that these are tense times, the first thing you don't do is replace your silverware. And it actually sent Oneida into bankruptcy. The crash of the silverware bubble. Uh, And they were already already under a lot of pressure because manufacturing of all kinds was moving overseas. And they continued to be a a U.S. manufacturer until this period. Uh, But they couldn't sustain it. And just in the last 15 years, the Oneida company offshored its manufacturing and then became one of the many U.S. companies that was bought and sold and shuttled between conglomerates and then bought and sold by financial services organizations uh, until now Oneida is basically a company that's owned by Nabisco. Um, I don't think it's literally Nabisco. Some some massive multinational. So the, the name has now changed. The multinational corporation that bought it ended up changing the name of the entire company from everywhere, W-A-R-E. I get it. Everywhere Global. It's now called the Oneida Group. Well, if there's any business organization that should know about keeping things moving even while you're under pressure... It should be the descendants of the male continence practitioners of the Oneida sex cult. I wonder if it's still a requirement to sit on the board of the Oneida group that you not orgasm unless explicitly for the creation of life. They have, yeah, they have all kinds of crazy secret sex orgies with no actual finish. They literally don't end. <laughs> and that concludes Oneida. Entry 866.MT2230, certificate number 34322, in the omnibus. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and flatware still exists in your era, and you want to use social media to talk about flatware, our tweets are archived at Omnibus Project for all time. Back in our day, our individual handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. John also used that handle on Instagram. Our address for email, popular form of digital communication in our era, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. 
Futurelings, obviously, we are communicating with you from your distant past. And we have no way of knowing how long our civilization will survive. We continue to believe that the catastrophe we fear may never come. We hope to prolong it indefinitely, like, like an Oneida sex cult member. That's right. We believe in audio continence. We want to keep this going for as long as possible. If we don't manage to survive as a people, as a time, and the worst comes... Our civilization does, in fact, reach a climax. We, uh, we fear that this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if the great god in the silverware drawer allows, uh, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>